0: Gateway, good day to you. I'm Kyle, pastor here, and today we find ourselves in the second week of the Lenten season, and I don't know what that means for you as you come, but for me, as we um, are are moving kind of deeper into this season of solidarity with Jesus as we're headed toward the cross, I find both uh, comfort, consolation, and a a little bit of desolation, this um, challenge or tension, if you will, and Maybe it's just I've been I've been thinking about this and I'm thinking okay well what what is it that I want to relinquish a good thing that I want to relinquish to God to receive the better namely His presence and in some of those areas I've I've felt God's comfort in that relinquishing and in others I've just felt frustration like I'm trying to like acquire this thing and. It's been challenging, to be honest with you, and, and so if you're, if you're joining us here today for the first time, maybe the first time in a long time, we're kind of doing this tandem act of um, entering into the season of Lent in solidarity with Jesus and journeying through the gospel according to Mark. And really now and for the next four weeks, uh, we will be moving deeper in this is not an easy story to move through, the the passion narrative as we head toward the cross. And today, that is the case. It it is a challenging story. And so if you will, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 14. We'll be picking up in verse 53. And as we make our way, kind of, like I said, deeper into Jesus's passion narrative, we come to what for many of us is a well-known scene. It's a scene that some commentators call the tale of two trials or Uh, this betrayal in the shadow of faithfulness. And I think that both of these banners, both of these descriptors are helpful, and they will come to light as we unpack our teaching text today. But as I was sitting with this, I couldn't help but think of childbirth. And specifically, this line from St. Paul kind of haunted me. It was coming to mind time and time again, and it's this. This is from Galatians 4.19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, in this passage, Paul holds in tension the proximity of pain and formation. This is, after all, Paul's pastoral word to the churches in this region of Galatia, and And for him, that pastoral word comes with this maternal orientation. And quite frankly, this makes me uncomfortable. It's not not that Paul describes himself as a laboring mother in pain over these these people. In fact, that's a gift to the church. That's beautiful that Paul would invoke these maternal hues and the coloring of his language. This is a gift for us when we've historically pushed women to the side. No, Paul's giving us a gift. That's not what makes me uncomfortable. What makes me uncomfortable is how Paul holds intention, pain, and formation. Because when I'm honest, I don't want pain to be a part of my journey with Jesus. And I imagine some of you find yourself in the very same place. And in the Lenten season, that seems to be true all the more. And really, this harkens back uh, to last week and ours and the disciples' collective desire for the kingdom of God. But we want the kingdom of God without a cross-bound king. And yet Jesus refuses to relinquish the cross. He continues to be bound to the cross. And so often for us, That's frustrating because pain stands as a hindrance to formation, not a pathway to formation. And so in that space of frustration or discomfort or pain or failure, we turn away from Jesus, thinking that will be the resolution instead of turning toward Jesus and comfort. But this scene... Two trials, betrayal in the shadows. This scene reminds us of how squarely situated pain is in our journey into new life with Jesus. Altogether, this scene is an invitation, if we'll receive it, an invitation to embrace all that our journey with Jesus brings. And so, all we're going to do here today is just work our way through our teaching text line by line, and Lord willing, receive Jesus' invitation to be with him. So starting in verse 53, this is what we read in Mark 14. And they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law, came together there. At this point in the story, Mark, is, he slows down the narrative that already seems to be slowing, and it's, as it slows, it, it slows with haunting detail. If you recall the previous scene, all of Jesus' followers have abandoned him. It reaches this crescendo moment where that no-name follower of Jesus makes that unwholesome dash. He streaks off when Jesus is arrested. And here we have Jesus who up until this point, has really been the active agent moving the whole narrative forward. One, one healing, one divine encounter, one prayer after another. Jesus moves the story forward as its active agent. And now, Jesus isn't active at, at all. He's, he's passive. He's been handed over into the hands of men. And for us, as, as the readers of Mark's gospel, this is a dark moment but it's not altogether surprising, is it? See if you recall in chapters eleven and twelve, which are Jesus's entry into the city and confrontation at the temple. In those chapters, Jesus provoked the temple authorities, accusing them of greed and corruption. And I'm not saying that Jesus's provocation re- resulted in him like getting what was coming to him, like like he deserved this. But by no means, like. Jesus called out the neglect of the poor and the abandonment of God's law because these people, the the chief priests, the elders, the rulers, what we know as the Sanhedrin, they are called to uphold those realities. They're called to be like the guardians of God's justice for the people of God, and yet they've abandoned that. And then when Jesus calls them out, and really condemns the whole temple apparatus, um, in fear and, and in a posture of defensiveness, they seek to destroy Jesus. And just picture this, I mean, if let's say you're in an argument with somebody and, and and they're being rather forceful, maybe you've experienced this, or you could just imagine it in your mind's eye, and they they push you either with their words or physically into a corner in that position, some things like like our animal brain just turns on. It's like straight up amygdala, and we're like, it, it's we we fight, we freeze, or we flee. And for these these leaders, they fight, they seek to destroy Jesus really the truth of who they are, the truth of who they were, it was exposed, and when the light of Jesus' kingdom proclamation shone on who they truly were, their response was to destroy Jesus. It's dark, but it's not really surprising, the scene that we're in. And we see this unfold all the more. Go with me to verse 55. And The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And as we see this trial begin to unfold, immediately some things are off and not just this explicit desire to put Jesus to death, that is of course off, but also the backdrop. See, this scene is set at night, which is itself an initial clue that this is not a true trial. This is a mock trial because tradition maintained that no trials could be held at night. And to talk about tradition then means that we need to have a little sidebar conversation about the Mishnah. And I'm sure you've been you know, reading in the Mishnah that oral tradition that accompanies the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Torah. Now, I'm, I'm just kidding, you don't have to be reading in the Mishnah, although it's quite fascinating if you do want to dive deep into it. But for these leaders, the Mishnah was integral to how they conducted their lives. At least it's, it's where the Mishnah gains all of its credibility is how they conducted their lives. And so there's specific details about how things like this, a, a capital trial, were to go down. So, for example, the court itself was required to convene at the Hall of Hewn Stones, this place within the temple courts. And where are they now? Yeah, they're on the estate of the high priest Caiaphas. They're nowhere near the Hall of Hewn Stones. And it gets sketchier still. I mean, it, it, in every case where capital punishment was in question, which this is one of them, before a damning allegation could be received by the council, a, a one, an, an atoning one, an atoning commendation, if you will, had to precede a damning allegation. And that was to be the rhythm. It, it, so, so, for example, this person is innocent for this reason, followed by, no, they're not, and here's why. Let's just say that the accused party is actually found guilty. That's actually not the end of the trial. See, according to the Mishnah, there was to be a whole day where the council would sit with the matter. And hopefully, hopefully, they would change their mind and orient themselves toward mercy. So, is this the scene that we're in? Is this the council that Jesus stands before? It doesn't look like it. I mean, just keep going in verse 57. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. And we we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, we'll build another not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. And of course it doesn't agree because Jesus never said these words. I mean, in chapter 13, Jesus does make a cryptic prophecy about the temple coming to ruin. And most scholars would agree that that Jesus' words, specifically not one stone here will be left on another, those words are talking about the forthcoming destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But Jesus's words, they're not like a statement of arson or a call to riot or like a militaristic coup. In any event... There's allegation, but there's no affirmation. There's no atoning claims coming before the council. Instead, this is just a mob seeking death. And to help get them there, the high priest Caiaphas, he stands up and in verse 60 says to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remains silent and gave no answer. And and in saying that, Mark is kind of coloring in the backdrop of Jesus' character, who is so well-developed, and he colors in Jesus' character a bit more with the statement of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And I, I encourage you, after this, go and read through that. And just, you'll see Jesus jumping off the page in those moments. But Jesus gave no answer, and so the high priest asked him, Are you? Are you the Messiah, the son of the Blessed One? And presumably Caiaphas was trust like he was just frustrated by all the disagreement and Jesus' silence. And so he he takes matters into his own hands and just plainly asks, Are you the Messiah, the son of the Blessed One? Just cuts to the chase. And what's interesting is that this question that Caiaphas asks, it's it's in the Greek that the language of the New Testament was originally written in, it's more of a statement with a question mark on the end. You are the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. And this is the identical language to Peter's messianic claim in Mark 8 you are the Messiah, the Christ. And what's so curious about this moment is that this isn't the high priest calling Jesus or provoking Jesus to make some sort of divine claim. No, because we must remember what are they after? They're after words that will lead to Jesus' death. They're after a charge that merits death. Because the council in this moment, they actually don't have the power to sentence Jesus to death. They don't have the power to put Jesus to death. But they do have the power to hand them over to Rome. And if they can hand Jesus over to Rome as an insurrectionist or a threat to the empire, they know how Rome treats threats to the empire. They put those threats on display as undignified and as defeated. They put him on display on a cross. And then Jesus, who up until this point has been Silas, who's been Silas, says to Caiaphas, I am, in other words, I am the Messiah, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And right here, Jesus just packs together all of these Old Testament allusions and texts. And Jesus, he, he essentially moves right past the question about whether he is the Messiah and reframes what it means for him to be the Messiah. You see, Caiaphas comes, you are the Messiah, the, the son of the mighty one. And Jesus goes, yeah, 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 I am that. And you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the mighty one. And Jesus, in this moment, he's, he's essentially, he's invoking his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, which comes from this prisoner of war and prophet we know as Daniel. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, has this trippy dream while he's in captivity in Babylon, and he has this dream about the truly human one, one who he calls like the Son of Man, which just means human. But this son of man, this truly human one, would resist all the calls to to, to rule like earthly rulers, who who Jesus earlier on says, Lord, it over. Jesus resists this. And he calls himself by this title. He, He calls himself by the title of the son of man, the one who would live in complete obedience to the father and be exalted by him. And just to to hear this um, from Daniel's own lips, this is what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And just pause right there. Um, This is this ascent to heaven, but God is known in the Hebrew Bible as the cloud rider. These are Um, This is language not of like a Jesus floating down in an ethereal cloud or something like that, or or this idea of Jesus coming at the end of time. This is this is language that would draw your imagination immediately to the one true Creator God. See this in Isaiah 19: God comes riding on the clouds with justice in hand to judge the idols of Egypt. I mean, God is the cloud rider, and here Jesus is tapping into this imagery. So we pick back up and we, we read that he, the cloud rider, now the son of man, approached the Ancient of Days, which is Daniel's name for Yahweh, the one true God, and was led into his presence. And then this, the son of man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, so when Jesus is asked who he is, he ushers forth this image. This is who I am. He is the one who God exalts to have an everlasting dominion. And upon hearing these words, we see the response in verse 63 back in Mark 14 And the high priest tore his clothes, this symbol of intense distress, not a very practical move, but nevertheless, a culturally bound symbol. And he tears his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. That's what they thought. Then some began to spit at him. They took a blindfold and they blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. In the end, the the council got what they wanted, trumped up charges. See, blasphemy, that, that claim really only came when the name of Yahweh was explicitly blasphemed. Jesus doesn't do this. But the high priest tears his robes, trumped up charge. See, they got what they wanted, not justice. This this council wants the furthest thing from justice. No, they got evidence to condemn Jesus to death, the one who exposed the darkness of their own hearts. And ironically, their actions secure Jesus' identity all the more. For as they beat him, Mark draws to the fore of our mind, Isaiah 50, and this is is where Yahweh says, I have offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. See, the irony of all of this is just as Jesus is being mocked and beaten as a false prophet, his prophetic words are actually being fulfilled just feet away in the courtyard. And you may have noticed as we entered into the trial that we actually skipped a verse, verse 54. And so go back there with me, if you will. Mark 14, 54 reads like this, And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So you might ask yourself, what's Peter doing here? I mean, Mark claimed that everyone had abandoned Jesus, I mean, the, the streaker goes off. He like embodies that Jesus's disciples will leave everything, not to follow him, but to flee from him. So what, what's Peter doing here? Well, just consider his character arc with me for a moment. I mean, P- Peter is the one who boldly rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, I am bound toward the cross. Yeah, Peter's the one who rebuked him. Peter's the one who assumed to speak on behalf of the other disciples. Uh, Peter's the one who, moments before the Garden of Gethsemane, like bold and brash as ever, boasted that he would never deny Jesus. Even if he had to go with him to death, he would never deny him. A statement which Jesus quickly counters by uh, prophesying, by predicting that Jesus, excuse me, that Peter will indeed deny him, in fact, three times that very night. And then with dramatic irony in the very next scene, Mark depicts Jesus coming to Peter three times in the garden to foreshadow the three times he would deny him. And every single time, Peter was found asleep. How ironic it is that every time that Jesus comes to Peter, Peter is asleep to the call of Jesus to keep watch and pray. I mean, Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, okay, yes, keep watch and pray. The, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray lest you fall into temptation. And so, again, we just have to ask, like, what is Peter doing here? Like, is he trying to re- redeem himself? A- after making all these prideful and boastful claims, does he feel a sense of shame for not living up to his own standards? Maybe, maybe, as I was thinking about this, I was like, well, maybe, maybe Peter's trying to have one of those like told you so moments so that when he goes back to the disciples, he can say, see, see, I told you, I would never leave him. Let's find out. Verse 66, and while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, She looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. And immediately in verse 72, the rooster crowed the second time and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. See, in the end, actually not clear, according to Mark, why Peter snuck into the trial. But that doesn't really bother us, does it? I mean, most of us know this scene fairly well. And by this point, it it feels rather redundant. There's three allegations, there's three tests, Peter fails, Jesus doesn't. It seems to make sense. Like we see all this play out. And we know that we're one step closer to the cross. But this feels very arbitrary. I almost wonder, okay, what, Mark, what are you doing here? And we miss that this is a tragic story. See, I, like I found myself even just working through like the, the beating of Jesus, like finding myself feeling like choked up. But then I come to Peter and I'm almost like, well, kind of had it coming. I, I, I feel emotionally distanced from what Peter's going through. And that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Pain is a part of our formation. I don't want to hold those things in tension. But the story's an invitation to do just that. And it's through tragedy. See, in the end, Peter pledges that he doesn't even know Jesus. And the ultimate tragedy of this tragedy is that it's True. Peter swears to God that he does not know God. I mean, Peter can't even bring himself to say Jesus' name. It's simply, I don't know this man. This is painful. And, and one commentator notes that, that for Peter, Peter's forsaken a discipleship of costly following for safe observation. And when I, when I read that, it was like a dagger. Because there, in presumed safety, with guard and fire warm, Peter is found out. And the, the convicting implications are quite obvious at this point. I mean, how many of us at one point or another have opted for safe observation over and against costly following? Whether it's standing firm in the historical Christian sex ethic or perhaps advocating holistically for life? I'm talking like womb to tomb. Yes, of course that. But also what about the marginalized and the poor and um, even our enemies, those who disagree with us advocating for their life? What about the the area of like nonviolence, like one of the most robust and clear teachings of Jesus? See, there is a cost to being with Jesus. And this cost this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian martyr, d- describes in these words. He says, when, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him or her to come and die. And perhaps those, those words feel quite brash, but he's simply articulating what Jesus did millennia before, that anybody who would come and follow Jesus must pick up their cross, deny him, but deny themselves and follow him. I mean, like that's like self-denial man. See, when, when Peter's pressed, he fails. And to be honest, I, I have no idea what I would do if I were in Peter's situation. This is, after all, what the gospels invite us to do, is to see ourselves into these stories. These aren't just historical artifacts that like, tell us something about ourselves. No, these are stories that are meant to transform the way we see and live into the world what I know that is, is that it's okay if this scene makes me uncomfortable, but I just want to ask, is it, do you feel like it's okay if this makes you uncomfortable? See, I think that's the actual point of this whole story, is that we would feel the tension of pain and formation being held together in the person of Jesus, in the scene itself, because out of it comes new life. Contained within our Holy Bible are a collection of stories about failures trying to follow Jesus. Like, how could we not find ourselves in these stories? And I think what's so beautiful about this is that in the end, God is not left utterly hopeless because of our disobedience or our safe observation of Jesus, See, the truth is, is that the Father's love, it swallows up our failures because it's relentless. His love is relentless. We actually see this unfold in another gospel account, in the gospel according to John. Very end of the story, John 21, we we see post-resurrection Jesus, spoiler alert, uh, Jesus doesn't stay dead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh God vindicates his name and raises Jesus in the power of the spirit from the dead. And then Jesus for the third time appears to his disciples after the resurrection, and in this third time he they're off fishing. And there they are doing what what Jesus first found them doing. And he's on the shore and he ca- like he sees him, the, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's likely to be the um the one who wrote the gospel according to John. Just a great little way just to, uh, as a side note to describe yourself, ah, the one who Jesus loved. Well, he sees Jesus and as soon as John says he sees Jesus, like Peter grabs his like tunic or outer cloak or something because apparently he took it off and he grabs it, which is counterintuitive. Why would you grab your cloak to jump in the water? Nevertheless, he's like booking it toward the shore and there Jesus encounters him. And I just imagine Jesus with like a warm smile welcoming him. And all they bring all the fish and all these things and then they sit down and... And it's as though Peter and Jesus have this intimate moment. And Jesus then asks him three times, do you love me? And at the end of it, you know, the third time, Peter Peter feels kind of burned because he's like, yeah, of course I love you. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus' invitation in that place, after predicting that Jesus, that Peter will indeed follow Jesus even into his death, he calls Peter to follow him again. See, if you're like me, you really have no problem believing that that Jesus could forgive Peter after that epic betrayal. But you have a real hard time believing that God would forgive you after your own treachery. And I'm here to tell you, And to tell myself that God does not hold our failures against us in Jesus' name. See, there's resurrection power and forgiveness because in forgiveness, God remembers our wickedness, our sin no more. Jesus restores Peter. Jesus awakens life in this man so that he too could be a part of awakening life. And others. And just consider this. You know, many scholars actually hold up Peter as John Mark's eyewitness testimony. Basically, Peter's the one from whom we receive the witness of the gospel according to Mark. So let that sink in. Imagine one Sunday you're at a, a gathering. You know, this is in the wake of Jesus's. Life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father in glory. And, and there you are at like a gathering. So, um, I don't know, maybe you're in Rome or something like that, and you're sitting there, and this, this letter, the, the Gospel according to Mark, has just been read. And then Peter gets up <laughs> and he starts attesting to the beauty of Jesus. What would you think of him? I mean, how was he just described in the scene that we read? See, this man, he doesn't hide the darkest hue of his shadow side. No, instead he shines the light of the gospel in it because God will remember our failures no more. He swallows them up in love. Peter knows this to be true, and so he situates this story, he puts it front and center in the fullness of his humanity to show us that we can actually find ourselves with Jesus even in the face of failure. See, we we think that turning away in those moments is actually where we'll find rest and consolation. No, it's turning toward God. That's why the beginning message of the gospel is repent, turn around and believe, trust in the good news who is Jesus, that he is king and we are not. The same call goes out in the story of Peter. See, Jesus didn't come to him when he was put together or when he had finally like cleaned up his life enough. No, Jesus came to Peter just as he was. And then he called him again to himself. And that's what God does to us. He calls us to himself just as we are. But notice he actually calls us into more than who we are. He calls us into who we truly are in Christ. We actually see a picture of this because in the wake of, of, of Jesus' restoration of Peter, we see these words come forth from this man restored in Jesus' name. And he says this to you and to me and to the Jesus community that stands... Well, I can stand in the confidence of Jesus. So hear these words as we come to a close. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, soil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven, who through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though, if you, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith— The salvation of your souls. See, all throughout the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, that word salvation, it's this word save. It's this idea of whole healing. We actually experience that now. And I wonder, I wonder if Peter knows that he can say these things. In fact, I'll I'll go so far as to say this. I think Peter can say these things because he has experienced this thing. The saving of his very soul. And that's not the wispy thing that flies off when we die. No, the soul is actually who we are. See, Peter's failure, it's not meant to discourage us in our discipleship to Jesus. Peter's denial, Peter's failure, it's put forward to draw us deeper into the life of Jesus. And though we weep, we will be comforted. Though we fail, the Father's love will be lavished on us still. doesn't mean we stay there, but perhaps it means that we open ourselves up to the God of love who is Jesus. See, failure, denial, betrayal, none of those are the end in the name of Jesus. And Peter's story, it declares over our doubt. It declares over our shame and our self-flagellation. It says to those things, get behind me, Satan. The very thing that Jesus Messiah said to Satan when he had the concerns of the world over and against the concerns of the kingdom, we now too stand with Jesus and say to those things, those lies we believe, that our failure, our denial, or our betrayal is the end. In Jesus' name, we can say to those things, get behind me. And whether we are laid flat on our face, we are weeping in the wilderness, or we are simply on our knees, bowed in contrition before the Father, in all of those spaces, the love of the Father is seeking us out. See, failure is not the end in the name of Jesus. Though now for a little while you have made, you have had to suffer kinds of grief, grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So church, let us Let us stand in the proven genuineness of our faith. Let us pray. Jesus, let it be so. Though for now we are are living with the grief of the encounter with various trials, with all of 2020, though now we stand tested and we may feel beaten down, let us be reminded, let us be reminded that you sustain us. So we just pray in your powerful name, Jesus, that you would come to your church, that you, Spirit, would minister to us, that you, would, that you would draw us into all truth, that you would draw us to Jesus. And from that place, we would know what is the truest thing about us, that we stand in the love of the community of love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in whom we live and move and find our being, and in whom we pray. Amen.